Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really terrific conversation on lung cancer screening. Today, we're very fortunate to have both Drs. Mazzone and Silvestri as our guests, and we will be discussing their article published in CHEST entitled, Screening for Lung Cancer, CHEST Guideline and Expert Panel Report. Dr. Mazzone, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks very much for inviting uh, inviting us to the podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Mazzone. I'm a pulmonologist, practice in Cleveland, Ohio at the Cleveland Clinic. I direct the lung cancer screening program for the Cleveland Clinic. And it's a pleasure to have you in the podcast with us. And then we also have Dr. Silvestri. Hello, I'm uh, Gerard Silvestri. I'm a pulmonologist at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, and uh, I am also involved heavily in our screening program, both at our home institution and uh, now throughout the state of South Carolina. Pleasure to be here, and and thank you for having us. An absolute pleasure to have uh, such experts on our podcast with us. Um, Today, we'll be discussing lung cancer screening, and Peter, maybe you can kick us off. Why do we need guidelines for lung cancer screening, and don't we already have them with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force? Yeah, it's a great a great question. I think you know the purpose of of guidelines is to really um, provide a summary of literature and evidence, and uh, provide recommendations so that anyone uh, across the country or the world who's interested in putting together a high-quality screening program can have, you know, a basis from which to do so. Uh, The recommendations that we provide can help with things like selecting who should be screened and who shouldn't, and uh, how do you screen somebody uh, so that you're going to provide as much benefit as you can while minimizing the harm to those individuals being screened. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, different guidelines out there, and there are some that drive policy, like the United States Preventative Services Task Force. I think it's healthy to have um, experts with uh, different views look at the evidence and put together their thoughts. Uh, it can be very, you know, stimulate ideas about where progress needs to be made. Um, Though the CHESS guidelines and other society guidelines don't necessarily translate directly into policy for insurance providers and the USPSTF, we know that they do uh, value those as resources for, that help them with their decisions, and, uh, and, and the researchers involved in the field also look and say, hey, here's what we can work on to make this, uh, make this even better for our patients. Thank you for that uh, overview. Gerard, why is lung cancer such a big issue in the United States, and why do we need to screen for it? Well, um, first of all, it's it's the commonest cancer killer in the United States in both men and women. Um, in fact, if you look at women, it's uh, more common to die of lung cancer than, than breath, all other female cancers combined. So breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, uterine cancer. So it's a, it's a huge, enormous uh, public health issue in the United States, um, which is, you know, why we think that uh, all of the, the guidelines for cancer, lung cancer, care, which are published in CHEST, are so important. Um, And screening uh, is important because uh, we know that most lung cancer patients are uh, diagnosed when they're fairly late stage in the disease. So stage three or four, uh, the vast majority of patients are uh, diagnosed during that uh, period of time. In 2011, uh, New England Journal published the uh, National Lung Screening Trial, which showed a 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality and a 7% overall reduction in mortality, uh, which really led to screening. In the past, we hadn't had evidence. We'd had evidence actually of no benefit for screening by chest radiograph, but now we have evidence that lung cancer screening can substantially reduce lung cancer mortality uh, with a yearly chest uh, CT in those who qualify. 
That's a really important uh, overview. So lung cancer is deadly and screening saves lives. Peter, maybe you could go through your methods for um, uh, performing your guidelines for lung cancer screening. What were they and why did you decide to perform a systematic review and meta-analysis? Sure. Yeah, CHEST has a very robust guideline um, guideline process. It's it's really a leader in the development of, of high quality guidelines. Uh, this set of guidelines, lung cancer screening guidelines, was a little bit unique, even to CHEST normal process, in that it was a, a what they call a living guideline, meaning we published our last lung cancer screening guideline in 2018. Since then, every three months or so, there was a systematic review of the literature in lung cancer screening. Uh, Gerard and myself would look at those articles that are pulled and decide which ones are relevant to the guidelines. Once we reached um, enough additional evidence that we thought there's a possibility some of our recommendations may change, then we convened the entire lung cancer screening guideline group. What drove a lot of that uh, decision to update our guidelines was the publication of the second study to show a benefit from lung cancer screening called the Nelson study that was published in 2020. So uh, from there, the entire group divides up all of the articles that were pulled and they review the articles, two individuals to each article, and vote as to whether those articles are important enough to contribute to the the guidelines relevant to any of the key questions that were developed to uh, prior to the initial guideline. Um, so, for example, key questions might include who do you screen, might include how you screen, how do you report findings, um, what are the harms of screening, things of that nature. Once the group decided which articles to include, then those key questions that had enough evidence to combine were put through the meta-analysis process. So meta-analysis of the controlled trials of, of does lung cancer screening lead to mortality reduction was performed because there were multiple studies and when they're combined, there's more power to detect uh, uh, a difference in in the screening versus no screening question. For some of the key questions, there wasn't enough evidence to support performing a meta-analysis. So meta-analysis was performed for the benefit of screening, a few of the harms, such as uh, how often are biopsies done, how often is surgery done for a screen-detected nodule that turns out to be benign, or does um, uh, smoking cessation uh, improve if conducted as part of a screening study? But many of the other key questions we thought were important to address just didn't have enough evidence to go through the entire meta-analysis process. There, the meta-analysis guides us. It doesn't tell us what our recommendations should be. For example, uh, when suggesting who should be screened, there's a meta-analysis about benefits of screening and one about harms of screening, and those things have to be incorporated into that that recommendation. So uh, from there, we drafted recommendations based on that evidence, and the entire panel ends up voting on those recommendations. And there's a pre-established threshold uh, where uh, a certain percentage of those who are voting have to say, yes, I agree with this guideline recommendation. If uh, we don't meet that threshold, then we reconvene and discuss the reasons why, how we might rephrase things, and vote again until we uh, reach consensus. When developing the group, the panel, we wanted to make sure that there were uh, was representation from uh, a broad group of stakeholders. So we had pulmonologists, such as Gerard and myself. We also had primary care provider. We had a chest radiologist. We had a thoracic surgeon involved in the panel. We had individuals who have a great deal of expertise in uh, developing um, models, uh, risk prediction models, and uh, many of the panel have uh, implementation science background to help 
uh, really provide a broad perspective uh, related to who we should screen and how to implement high-quality screening. Um, I like think that covers the methods pretty well, but happy to answer any other questions there. It sounds like a lot of work, Peter, and uh, I think the importance of the living guideline uh, can't be understated. Uh, it, it sounds like uh, you've continually updating um, your, your, your literature shirts, making sure that patients' uh, um, data are included. How much work is that, and um, what does it involve uh, for you and Gerard on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it uh, it was quite a bit of work. The hope was by having a living guideline model, you know, that work would be spread out over time and not quite as intense as having to do something from scratch. That said, you know, it seemed particularly with the new evidence and the USPSTF coming out around the same time um, that we really had to put in the time to make sure we understood that new evidence well and come up with, um, you know, thoughtful recommendations. So it did take uh, quite a bit of time, but it was very rewarding. Always great to talk with such a, you know, group of smart and interested people and, and put something together that, that you're proud of. That's good to hear. Uh, Gerard, um, Peter mentioned the Nelson study published in 2020. Before we get to uh, the key findings of your uh, guidelines, maybe you could just uh, tell us what the data was from the Nelson study and what our uh, uh, listeners need to know about it. Well, whenever I look at another large trial, and we were waiting so long for Nelson to be published, um, what I want to see is is if the findings of the seminal trial, which we view as the National Lung Screening Trial, could be repeated. And that's, in fact, what we found. Now, the Nelson trial did only have only uh, 18,000 or so participants as opposed to the National Lung Screening Trial, which was 53,000 or so. There were a couple of differences. One important difference was that they, uh, our control group in NLST was chest radiograph, and the control group in Nelson was uh, was usual care, meaning they didn't get screened at all for anything. Um, But the main thing that really warmed my heart was the fact that the uh, mortality uh, benefit was almost completely mirrored that of the National Lung Screening Trial. Now, they did not find a difference in uh, in overall mortality, just in lung can- a, a, a very large reduction in lung cancer-specific uh, mortality, and that's probably because they didn't have enough patients to see the overall mortality dif- difference that we saw in the National Lung Screening Trial, which was 7%. Had it been powered up to uh, the amount that we had for NLSP, I'm certain they would have seen a benefit. Um, the other interesting thing, 80, 85% of the uh, Nelson trial were uh, were males and 15% were females. So they actually, in the New England Journal article, uh, they, they, they analyzed those separately. And another trend that is, I think, a very important trend that we need to do a little bit more digging into um, is the fact that women, both in NLST and in the Nelson trial, did significantly better than men. Um, now, again, for Nelson, it was analyzed differently. We don't exactly know the cause for that, and maybe uh, such things as competing causes of death in men were worse than women, maybe different histology or biology of the tumor, but we don't know that. The big take-home message there is that Nelson supported very much our findings in NLST in a very large, very well-done randomized trial. I don't think will be repeated. So we have two very large trials saying substantially the same thing. That's good to hear. Peter, what were your impressions from the Nelson trial? Yeah, you know, I I echo what Gerard said. I think um, important to the guidelines was that the trials, uh, though similar, were different in ways that impact our recommendations. So it was a different age range in Nelson than NLST, a different smoking history uh, for inclusion in the Nelson trial versus the NLST. The interval between follow-up scans varied in Nelson, and uh, in the NLSTs was baseline in two annual scans, how long they were followed, how they identified a lung nodule. Nelson used volumetric imaging and brought people back in three months for another scan if if it was in an indeterminate nodule size range. So the fact that there were so many differences in how the two trials were conducted 
you know, uh, gives us an opportunity to be very thoughtful when we say how should lung cancer screening be implemented. Early on, everything we'd say would be mirrored by what happened in the NLST. That was the only trial we had that showed benefit. Now this extra bit of evidence with slightly different, you know, inclusion and and process, um, you know, allowed us to think even clearer about how how we should recommend lung cancer screening gets implemented. Okay, so if let's I jump just, into. If, if oh, I go I ahead, Gerard. Uh, if I could just add to that uh, for a moment uh, and say that in the uh, in the Nelson trial, uh, also we had this younger age group down to 50 and a less of a pack year eligibility at uh, a 20 pack year rather than 30. And in the end, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force moved their recommendations down to 50 and 20 uh, years, 50 years old and 20 pack year history. And so having that support from the Nelson trial plus some modeling which was done by uh, by the folks uh, from USPSTF, uh, really did support that change in recommendation, which then, of course, the CHESS guidelines also uh, concurred with. Yeah, that's reassuring that uh, both uh, you and the USPF uh, agreed on that uh, finding. So, Peter, let's jump into um, your key findings um, for uh, the CHESS guidelines. Um, you divided the findings up into two groups, uh, first the selection of individuals and then the implementation of high-quality screening. So let's deal with the selection of individuals first. Uh, you all had five uh, recommendations, three of them strong, two of them weak. What were they? So the recommendations for who should be screened um, tried to synthesize the evidence of both the benefit, like we've talked about, and the harms of screening, finding nodules, biopsies for nodules in particular. Um, So our first recommendation uh, was the same as the recommendation we had in 2018. Individuals age 55 to 77 smoked 30 pack years or more and they have smoked cigarettes within the last 15 years, healthy enough to tolerate evaluation of screen-detected findings or treatment of early-stage cancer, uh, we recommended that that group should be screened. The difference between the recommendation this time and in 2018 was just in the strength of the evidence because we had a second study showing benefit. That recommendation mirrors what Medicare has approved uh, up until now, they're relooking at their eligibility criteria. Recommendation number two said if you don't meet recommendation number one, but you're between age 50 and 80 and you've smoked 20 pack years or more, smoked within the last 15 years, that we also recommend that you be screened. Uh, same caveats, you have to be healthy enough to tolerate evaluation of screen-detected findings or treatment of early-stage lung cancer. Now, this mirrors the USPSTF's recommendations and um, was kind of fueled by the meta-analysis of other studies with Nelson, uh, you know, dominating that area starting at age 50. Um, We leave remarks and we highlight there that there will be some individuals in that range who Uh, don't have that high a risk, and you really need to individualize decisions with your patients. The third recommendation said for individuals who don't meet number one or number two, are there any that might benefit from screening more than they're harmed? So uh, we looked at the evidence around calculators of the risk of developing lung cancer and a calculator that describes the benefit of of, uh, being screened for for lung cancer. And there are a couple of facts that really drove our our strong feeling that we wanted to look at that evidence closely. One was that individuals who quit smoking more than 15 years ago have been shown to still have quite an elevated risk of developing lung cancer. And there'll be some in that group could have smoked 50 pack years but quit 17 years ago. There'll be some that have a high enough risk and are still healthy enough to benefit from screening. And the current eligibility criteria based on age and smoking history alone would ignore that group. The second was it's been shown that the uh, current guidelines, the former USPSTF guidelines based on age and smoking history, could selectively disadvantage 
some uh, some groups, and, and we wanted to be sure that our guidelines provide equitable access uh, to lung cancer screening. So, for example, uh, the old guidelines were more sensitive at finding white individuals who had lung cancer than they were at finding black individuals who had lung cancer. And there's been some evidence to suggest by using risk calculators, you can deal with those two driving concerns. One, ignoring people who've quit more than 15 years and uh, equitable access or distribution of eligibility um, for screening. So our third uh, recommendation, after a lot of debate about those, those calculators, suggested if you don't meet number one or two, but you're shown to have uh, a high net benefit, so lots more benefit than potential harm for lung cancer screening, based on a risk calculator plus a life expectancy estimate, or based on a benefit calculator that we suggest screening should occur. In the remarks, we described what those calculators were and what thresholds of risk or benefit uh, could be used to identify individuals with a high net benefit. We also go on to uh, recognize that uh, things have to be practical and feasible. Some of the calculators require more time and energy to uh, put in data to calculate uh, risk or benefit, and that may not be feasible uh, in everyone's practice. And currently, you know, policy drives coverage, and currently the policy from USPSTF or CMS don't include the use of these calculators. So we, we wanted to be sure everybody was um, looking at that recommendation with eyes wide open. The final two recommendations about who should or shouldn't be screened are really kind of just repeating what we've said and highlighting their importance. So one was if you don't meet any of these first three recommendations and thus are felt not to have a high net benefit from screening, then you shouldn't be screened. And the final one was if you're uh, too sick uh, to benefit from screening, uh, severe COPD, you know, limited life expectancy for uh, any number of severe comorbidities, that you really shouldn't be screened either. So that kind of summarizes the five recommendations related to who should be screened. So Gerard, uh, listening to Peter, um, it's very thoughtful um, uh, and practical approach uh, to lung cancer screening, and uh, you, you'll have considered scenarios of benefits outside the stated ages or eligibility criteria. Um, that's very useful um, for clinicians who are practicing uh, pulmonologists or looking to screen patients for lung cancer. What were your impressions of the guidelines? Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree with uh, Peter uh, more. I think it's it, it, there are some sort of nuances to this as well, though, which is that, you know, right now, uh, uptake for screening is not quite where we would like it. We really don't see, of the 8 million Americans, uh, uh, individuals in, in the United States that are eligible, um, there is, you know, we can quibble about what the number is, but it's somewhere between 6 and 12 percent of that eligible population is being screened. And there are likely a lot of barriers, but certainly one of them is actually identifying the patients. So our electronic medical record, um, you know, doesn't really identify as many former smokers, for example, and they may be sort of out of sight, out of mind for a practicing clinician. And, and in this case, a lot of the screening is, uh, is promoted by primary care providers who might, you know, a patient might have stopped smoking 10 years ago and still be eligible for lung cancer screening and benefit greatly from it. But there might not be an easy way to get at that as opposed to, for example, colorectal and breast cancer, where it's largely age and or sex, right? So for women age 50, mammography, they don't really need to think much about it, but here you have to calculate uh, the age, the pack your history, and if you quit, how long ago you quit. So, so it's it's a little bit more challenging to identify at least former smokers. Um, the other thing is in using these risk calculators, which I can tell you both uh, Dr. Mazon and myself in our screening program, um, we we believe in those calculators and we use them as part of the shared decision making visit. Um, our advanced practice providers use those to inform a patient about what their individual risk of developing cancer over the next six years or so would be. Um, those are great and they're wonderful, but again, 
again, it's a little bit of a challenge for uh, folks in the primary care community um, who aren't really in tuned with this um, to to enact those. So there's a difference between guideline-based recommendations and how do we implement that uh, in the United States. But I couldn't agree more about uh, the overall recommendations when to screen. I also think it's important to point out when not to screen. So there's uh, some people who advocate, for example, screening uh, people who never smoke cigarettes but might have a family history of lung cancer. And again, in those uh, populations, their uh, harm-to-benefit ratio really favors harm more than benefit on a population basis. And so not screening them. The other group that I think we've had a little challenge with is is screening patients who uh, have a short life expectancy. So it's easy to identify a heavy smoker with COPD on oxygen might, you know, would be certainly eligible to be screened. The problem is that they may die of other uh, competing causes of death. So Screen the identifying people who are eligible and really uh, great to be screened is a little bit of a challenge, and we have to help overcome that. Also, uh, not screening people who wouldn't benefit is important. So the guidelines are fantastic, and they tell us how to work through those nuances. Implementation's uh, something else. Yeah, that's a really good uh, uh, understanding of the guidelines, Peter. I do want to ask you about the guideline number three. Um, as you alluded to, uh, the benefits of the USPSTF uh, forces that they um, it's, it incorporates Medicare uh, reimbursement. So, what do you do if you meet guideline number three, but you don't have the finances to pay for lung cancer screening? Are they? Or what what happens to patients in that category? Yeah, if you uh, meet our number three guideline or recommendation. Um, then you may not currently have access to screening. That That is the reality. Um, we would like our guidelines to help policy move towards, you know, what we think is the, the right thing to do. But there's, a, you know, a lot of other, um, you know, excellent thinkers who are working uh, on these policy recommendations to say, you know, what is going to be covered and what's not. There are programs that do uh, screen some individuals who they feel have a high net benefit outside of the guidelines, um, and and you just have to be very careful to make sure that um, you're not breaking any rules about uh, payment for the screening uh, test itself and that there would be access to that individual to all of the downstream care that's necessary to make sure that any finding from the screening test is well managed. So it is a tricky uh, situation right now, and we, we certainly put that in a remark, and we're trying to be thoughtful about it, but felt it was important enough to include that suggestion um, to try and help move the field forward. Definitely. So let's turn to the implementation of the high-quality screening. Uh, what struck me here was that there were 11 guidelines. Uh, one of them had a strong recommendation, one had a weak recommendation, and nine, uh, the group um, had consensus, but it was ungraded. Uh, Peter, maybe you could go through those with us. Yeah, uh, I may ask you if I forget some, Dominique, to, to remind me because I don't have it open in front of me here. But uh, I think that this is a very, very important section, just as important as, you know, the background about benefits and harms. Really, um, the, the uh, eligibility for screening is just the starting point. That's where you're identifying someone who's likely to benefit more than they would be harmed from screening. Uh, but high quality implementation is entirely necessary to you know to see that uh, to its finish. Uh, most individuals have at least one small lung nodule and and so if you're over managing that nodule over uh, biopsying benign nodules, you're likely to increase harms without increasing benefit. If you end up uh, implementing a program where you're getting a lot of really sick individuals being referred and screened, um, then again, the, the benefit side of it will fail. So uh, I think this is imp as important as the, you know, the more in uh, what some might feel the more interesting piece of, well, who should we screen and who shouldn't we? So I'm going to take it in, in no order, um, but uh, for example, we felt that it was very important to distinguish screening from diagnostic testing. 
So screening means you have an individual at risk for a disease, but no symptoms or signs of the disease. Whereas if somebody uh, came to your program with a symptom, you shouldn't turn them away, even if they're not eligible, you should manage that symptom. So if somebody has uh, chest pain, cough, unintentional weight loss, if they don't meet screening eligibility criteria, you may still go ahead and get a CAT scan for diagnostic purposes. We felt that it was very important that the uh, patient be involved in the decision about whether they should be screened or not, knowing some individuals um, prefer to uh, um, prefer to uh, avoid harms at all costs, and some would much rather see the benefit side of it and not worry about any of the harms. We thought shared decision-making was important. Um, so uh, we have a recommendation suggesting shared decision-making with some guidance about how that might occur, regardless of how your program is designed. One of the biggest uh, potential harms is if lung nodules are mismanaged. So we have a couple of recommendations about lung nodules. The first being what size lung nodule should you call positive, meaning you need a test before the annual screening exam comes up. Um, and, and we recommend it either four, five, or six millimeters. Six millimeters is the most commonly used threshold because uh, the lung rads, the American College of Radiology's reporting system, uh, suggests six millimeters as the cutoff on the initial scan. And we all report data to the ACR's national registry, so it's the most convenient. But we didn't feel there was strong enough evidence to say you couldn't use four or five millimeters. The second uh, describe, second recommendation about lung nodules describes uh, the management of the lung nodules. And this isn't a lung nodule management guideline, but it's such a critical part to implementing high-quality screening that we wanted to be sure to comment on it. We commented that you should have a multidisciplinary team or at least be connected to a team that has lung nodule expertise if, if you know, you're in a small place at a distance from uh, some of the, the tools that are necessary to manage lung nodules with high quality. Um, we suggested that uh, we don't over-treat lung nodules uh, that we think are non-invasive or early forms of lung cancer. So in particular, a ground glass nodule that might represent an adenocarcinoma in situ can take a long, long time to develop into an invasive cancer and other, um, other conditions may impact that patient's life before that nodule ever does. So we stressed that you should have a, uh, a thoughtful way to address uh, lung nodules that have a potential to be overdiagnosed and overtreated. Uh, additional recommendations related to how you do the scan and how you report the scan. Um, we are not a radiology society, so we didn't dive terribly deep into it, but we felt it was a critical part of a high-quality screening program, and the uh, radiology societies have excellent guidance on how to perform a low-dose CT scan, so we referred to their uh, standards as one of our uh, recommendations. And there's also uh, some evidence to suggest that the radiology report, if it's structured in a very useful way, can help uh, help with making sure that uh, that nodules are managed well. So uh, an additional recommendation was to use a structured radiology report. We put in the remarks um, the lung rads within that report is is what's commonly used nowadays. Lung nodules aren't the only thing found on CT scans of the chest. You, have, you might find a thyroid nodule. You might find coronary artery calcification, emphysema, things in the upper abdomen. So one of our recommendations was that a program should have an approach to the evaluation and management of these other non-lung nodule findings. Um, having an approach that may involve other specialists in your program can help to minimize you know, unnecessary testing for these incidentalomas, but may also help to expedite care for one that's that's quite uh, important. Other cancers than lung cancer are found at times on these screening tests, as is severe coronary artery calcification or thoracic aortic aneurysms, and they should be evaluated. 
many of the patients, perhaps up to half in many of the programs, uh, are still smoking cigarettes. So we feel that uh, as valuable as the screening test itself would be guidance to that individual on how to uh, quit smoking and uh, the importance of that. So we added a recommendation um, suggesting that smoking cessation discussion should be part of lung cancer screening programs and that those should follow um, the standard guidelines that are available for smoking cessation. Adherence to lung cancer screening is another uh, critical factor in its success. And by adherence, we mean it's not a single test. If you have a finding, you need to follow up for that finding. And if you don't have a concerning finding, you need to follow up annually for an annual screen. Uh, there's quite a bit of evidence available nowadays that programs are having difficulty in getting individuals to come back for the annual scans, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent uh, adherence to annual screening has been reported. Um, if that is uh, is consistent and carries forward, it's certainly going to minimize the benefit of lung cancer screening in general. So we reviewed that evidence and then left a recommendation um, for uh, uh, suggesting that every program have an approach to ensuring adherence to screening recommendations and annual screening and gave some examples of ways to um, to improve adherence within your program. We also suggested data collection. Data collection is important both because it's a mandate that you report data to the National Registry, but also very important for your own quality improvement efforts. You know, are you screening people too sick? What's your rate of biopsies? Um, how are you managing nodules? Is your radiation dose being monitored closely? All of these pieces of a high-quality program uh, should be tracked and periodically reviewed with plans put in place to uh, help in improve those um, those metrics. Dominique, let me know. Did I forget any there? You got a lot of them, Peter. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, with regards to implementation, if I, you know, I'm running a lung cancer screening program, how would I go about implementing all of these guidelines? Uh, there are a lot of ungraded consensus statements. Um, if I had limited resources, how would I choose which ones to do? Um, um, because 16 guidelines are uh, a lot, and if there are limited resources, how would I choose which ones to do and which ones to work on at a later stage? Peter? You know, I think that they're all critical uh, to high-quality screening. I don't think you can really pick and choose. That said, there are different ways a program can be structured that allows uh, you to put together a high-quality program despite your resources. So one example might be if you're a smaller center and you don't have all of the uh, specialty expertise to manage lung nodules, then you can connect to a larger center that's, uh, you know, within a driving distance of your patient population. And for uh, the, the lung nodules that are most worrisome, that need uh, additional tools or guidance, those can be referred to a you know a lung nodule tumor board that you can access at a distance. I think there are creative ways to make sure that you're checking the boxes for high quality screening even in resource limited areas um, and and I think that that's that's very important. Um, poor quality screening is more harmful I think than no screening at all so uh, I, I don't think there's a reason not to address. The, the various recommendations, though I definitely recognize that the way the solution looks may be different depending on the resources that you have available to you. Yeah, I agree. We definitely want high-quality screening. Uh, Gerard, what were your impressions uh, listening to Peter? And maybe you could comment on the similarities and differences compared to the USPSTF uh, recommendations. Well, I think, you know, the one thing that, uh, Peter, a little bit at the beginning, when you asked him the question of why chest do guidelines when the USPSTF 
uh, Murray has guidelines. I, I think it's important to understand the audience for these guidelines is, is everyone, but it's predominantly our chest uh, of physicians. And so we get into a bit more detail on some of these uh, ways to follow nodules on, on some of the things that Peter's pointed out around adherence and other things so that our constituency can get the things that we need, the tools that we need um, to, to, uh, to benefit our patients the most. I agree with everything Peter said, and I really want to, uh, to also uh, state that I don't, I don't think you can give up on any of these things uh, for a good quality screening program. One of the things that's different between screening and other health services that we provide is many times our patients come to us sick, and so uh, we, we do things that we you know, maybe don't need as much evidence for if they have a terribly sore throat and a fever and, and you look in and they're red, you'd give them an antibiotic. Just remember, though, with screening, you're looking for disease in an otherwise well population. And so you have to be able to acknowledge that, you know, you don't want to insert harm into that equation, but, but only benefit. Um, so I, I completely agree that you can't give up on any of those things. I also agree that there are really creative ways. And I can tell you that we've started a screening program in a 100-bed hospital that does not have a pulmonologist in the last six months uh, in the upstate of South Carolina. And we've, uh, we've, we're actually supervising the advanced practice provider who's an independent uh, provider and nurse practitioner. And we have our, uh, our tumor board available uh, to them so that uh, any lung RADS4 is presented at our tumor board so that we can discuss that. Uh, we have an APP here who's been doing screening for five years who's available by telephone. And, and so it's a, a, there are ways to do this that, uh, that are both, uh, re, you know, both able to be done in a resource-constrained area. And you mentioned resource constraints for the, for the hospitals and physicians, but for the patients, that's the same thing. And so we've used some combination of virtual visits for some patients who, uh, for example, have a lung rat 3, which is something where we'd have them come back in six months for their scan, but there's a finding there of some note. So in those cases, we've also tried to use uh, technology to aid us in uh, being able to serve our patients without, uh, without them having to, for example, my average patient comes from over 50 miles away for a visit uh, and gas can be problematic for some of our patients, just the cost of gas and, and parking and other things. So we've tried to use a combination of, uh, of things to allow our patients to be screened safely, um, to not use all their resources to do that, and to have other hospitals hook into our system uh, to be able to use our system. And, and I, I dare say there's probably enough now good screening centers around that they could use a wheel and spoke uh, situation to get to smaller centers that may not have all those resources. I appreciate you sharing those creative solutions to really uh, challenging problems. Um, Peter, there are no perfect systematic reviews or meta-analyses. There are no <laughs> perfect guidelines, which is why we're constantly having to reevaluate and improve them. When the audience or when the listeners uh, read your guidelines, uh, what do you want them to take home or what do you want them to understand in terms of the nuances of the guidelines? Where are areas that you think could be improved on? Um, where are areas that uh, we need future research? Yeah, I think you're, you're certainly right. There's no perfect evidence and the field will, will continue to evolve. Um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, it would be helpful to anyone to actually read through the evidence if they're um, willing and not just look at the recommendations themselves and you see where, where, how that evidence was synthesized to make those recommendations. So they say, you know, key questions had to do with benefits and harms and then that had to be synthesized to say who's, who's eligible for screening. And you may see that evidence a little bit different and you may make slightly different decisions. Um, and there isn't anything terribly wrong with that. Just, uh, you know, do so with, with all of the evidence there at hand. Um, it's harder to provide convincing evidence for some of the, uh, some of the implementation points that we felt strongly about. Uh, shared decision-making we feel quite strongly about, but the strength of the evidence, you know, uh, the, the types of outcomes and patient comfort with their decisions is uh, sometimes easier to debate than did somebody, did we avert some lung cancer deaths? Um, and again, so that's, that's natural and will lead to additional debate. Um, 
I think uh, you've highlighted that there's a lot of recommendations and, and thus the programs can feel somewhat complex. And and so in looking through those, I, I don't want anyone to get discouraged or feel like, you know, this is impossible to put together. Uh, quite the opposite. We hope that this can provide a, a, a pathway or a checklist of things that you need to organize when developing your program or aiming to improve your program. Uh, lung nodule evaluation is also an imperfect science, and yet it's a, a very large part of what lung cancer screening is, uh, guidelines for lung nodule evaluation, comments that we leave, you know, uh, you you have to individualize to your patient's particular situation. Um, you have to know that patient, know their values, know their comorbidities in order to make the best decisions with folks. So uh, I think I'd suggest, you know, take the time one day, look at that evidence, make sure you're comfortable with where these recommendations came from, you know, use the recommendations as a tool to help, you know, build a high quality program. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and we look forward to uh, providing more guidance as more evidence becomes available. I definitely, we definitely want our readers to review the evidence and make informed decisions. Um, Gerard, uh, what other studies are you looking for on the horizon? Are there any uh, lung cancer screening trials uh, in the works that uh, our audience should be aware of that will influence uh, your future recommendations uh, in, in new guidelines? Well, as I've said, I, I don't think there's going to be a, I don't see on the horizon another major randomized trial. I think the proof's now there that screening does work. I think what you're going to see, and I hope to see, is research into the implementation and each of the separate uh, guidance documents under this major guideline. So I think more research on the benefits of uh, shared decision-making, more research on nodule management, including whether biomarkers might help differentiate benign from malignant disease. One of the things I worry about in nodule management with screening is uh, is unnecessary surgery for benign disease. Um, we'd all take the risk for surgery knowing that you would have a cancer come out, but if you look in our guideline, what you might see is that, what you will see is that within screening trials, between 9 and 39 percent um, uh, of the patients who underwent surgery was discovered to have a benign uh, nodule, and I think the overall was about 20 percent. So a, a fifth of the patients who had a screen-detected nodule underwent unnecessary surgery for benign disease. We have to get better at that, and research is needed uh, there as well. And so I think the research we should be looking for is research on implementation. How do we improve uptake? How do we improve adherence? Um, there are eight current R01s, uh, those are Re uh, National Cancer Institute R01 grants to look at how smoking cessation can be incorporated into lung cancer screening. They're called the SCALE trials. They're fantastic, and we need to wait for the results of those because, you know, these are recalcitrant smokers. The ones who are currently smoking are smoking at least for around 30 years, at least a pack a day, and so they're the ones who have trouble, difficulty quitting. They're not sort of weekend smokers. We have to figure out how this is such an opportunity when they come in for screening to uh, to uh, engage them on smoking cessation, knowing that it might take you know six, seven, eight tries before they'll quit. We have to know about what the evidence is there. Those are the research programs that I'm really interested in in uh, in improving. The, the last thing I would say is the. Um, the, uh, the other thing around life expectancy, when, we, when do we stop screening? In what situations where would someone's health be not good enough to undergo screening? We know a lot about the risk of developing lung cancer, and we're just starting to get an inkling about uh, what, is the, what are the competing causes of death and how can we sort of calculate and model that uh, for patients. So all those are kind of exciting. You could take each one of those recommendations, other than the main recommendation, which is that screening works, and develop uh, a, a plan for research around those that's, that's much needed. Yeah, we'll definitely be looking for those studies. Uh, Peter, which studies are you looking for? I think, I think everything Jared said is exciting. The, the other two I might uh, mention uh, to tag on to the, you know, each of these implementation recommendations, adherence is really a, a huge issue right now with, with lung cancer screening. 
And so, you know, I look forward to, you know, research finding creative ways to use the EHR or reminders or personnel to um, help us improve adherence rates. The other would be uh, just as, you know, Gerard mentioned, biomarkers being developed for lung nodule evaluation. There are some uh, large studies uh, ongoing that are looking to develop lung, uh, biomarkers of the risk of having lung cancer, so an upfront screening test before a CT scan. That could, uh, you know, fundamentally change the face of screening if those uh, are quite successful. So those things, I, I think, in addition to what Gerard said, uh, will be exciting advances to look forward to over time. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, Peter and Gerard, you've been very uh, gracious with your time, and I applaud you both for um, your Herculean uh, task of uh, compiling these guidelines and for providing us with guidelines that are thoughtful, practical, and uh, you know are nuanced and uh, applicable to uh, everyday practice for pulmonologists. Um, I do want to give each of you an opportunity to leave us with the concluding remarks. Um, first, uh, Gerard, and then Peter. Gerard? Yeah, the the, uh, the American College of Chest Physicians Chest and the Journal Chest have really uh, expended a great deal of energy, support, and funding for these guidelines. Um, and the guidelines, not just the lung cancer screen, but guidelines around um, the management of thromboembolic disease and DVT, the management of other problems in, in lung cancer, and other guidelines that we're producing are incredibly useful for our uh, constituency. And it's really my hope that, um, you know, we know our pulmonologists see many different diseases in a day. Peter and I focus on cancer, but these guidelines can be awfully helpful, and we hope that, uh, we hope that the reader enjoys them and uh, is able to put them into practice. Thank you, Gerard. Peter? I appreciate uh, you know the opportunity to to speak about these guidelines. I think the one final takeaway is you know the guidelines are only useful if they're usable, and so our hope is that you know providing uh, the implementation guidance uh, allows them to be put into practice well. Um, it's a struggle of guideline developers. It's, okay, we can do the evidence search and the meta-analyses and put down thoughts, but how do we really make these guidelines usable for our readers? And so hopefully people find these usable and uh, we're open to anyone's feedback on how we can make these guidelines easier to to implement. Agree. Um, to our audience, we definitely encourage you uh, to read this uh, outstanding uh, guideline paper um, published in CHEST entitled Screening for Lung Cancer, CHEST Guideline and Expert Panel Report. A very big thank you to Drs. Mazzone and Silvestri for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our CHEST community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the CHEST Podcast.